So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you open our hearts and minds to your truth. Take the events from thousands of years ago and make them not just a story, but events that transform us for today, which is the reason we recognize that you recorded them for us all these many years ago. Open our eyes to your truth and transform us by it, please, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we finished with verses 1 through 5 of chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. We saw that chapter 12 is a very important chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. It's a transition chapter. It's kind of a farewell message by Samuel to the nation of Israel. It's the end of the era of the judges, and it's the beginning of the era of the kings. Samuel, in chapter 12, is passing the baton to the first of the kings, Saul. The baton that he's passing is really just one of the bundle of sticks that he has. He's got a bundle of sticks, three sticks. One is his responsibility as judge. Stick number two is his responsibility as prophet. And stick number three is his responsibility as priest. He hands the baton, the stick of judge. That responsibility is over. He hands that, remember a judge is a ruler. He hands that rulership responsibility over to the new king. But he holds the other two sticks. He holds the other two responsibilities. He continues to be priest and prophet really through the end of his life. This is just a transition of political power from the judges to the kings. And so chapter 12, we saw last time, is divided into four parts. Number one, Samuel will remind Israel of his credibility, his authority in order to, or his authority and credibility with respect to being able to speak of the things of God, to speak of God's ways. The second part is Samuel will remind Israel of God's faithfulness through a history lesson that he will give them. Part number three is that Samuel will admonish Israel for having sinned against God in that they asked God for a king like all the other nations. Part number four is in the tradition of all the prophets, the same tradition, the same pattern of the prophets, this prophet, who's the first of the prophets, Samuel, will call the people back to covenant, back to the Mosaic covenant. We studied the Mosaic covenant briefly in the past. It is God telling Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Samuel will mention God 36 times in chapter 12 because he is emphasizing the need for the people to submit to God, to trust him and to obey him. Let's briefly look at verses 1 through 5 one more time this evening. Chapter 12, verse 1 reads like this. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before Yahweh and his anointed. His anointed is a reference to the king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? 
Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, Yahweh is witness against you and his anointed, again the king, is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Here what Samuel is doing is he's reminding the people of his credibility so that they will listen to his message. For many decades, he led the nation well. He led the nation honorably. And in verses 3 and 4, he mentions a phrase four times. Actually, it's, it's focused on one word. You see it in verses 3 through 4, a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again. It's all circles around one verb, take. He says, I have not taken anything from you. And he says it four times in these four verses. He's reminding them of the warning that he issued back in chapter 8, the warning that God gave to Samuel to deliver to the people in chapter 8, verses 11 through 17. Remember, if you'll just turn back there briefly, we're going to see that text. But you remember in chapter 8, the people insisted that God give them a king like all the nations, and God warned them that a king like that would bring all kinds of unpleasant things. A king like that would have an M.O. that's characterized by taking. And that's why Samuel is making a contrast here. I didn't take, I didn't take, I didn't take, I didn't take. Unlike what the king that you have asked will do. So look back at 1 Samuel 8, verse 11. The warning from God was he, the king, the type of king you're asking for, a king like all the nations, he will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. Verse 13, he will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. The warning that God gave Samuel to give the people is that a king who is of the type of king you're looking for, a king like all the other nations, which is to say a godless king, a godless government is in the business of taking. This is what characterizes a godless government, whether it's a king or any other sort of government. It's a government that takes as opposed to protects. A godless government takes resources so that it has those resources to dole out political favors. A godless government takes so that it has resources to protect its base. I'm not saying that. This is what the text says. Look at verse 15, how the king would take verse 15 of chapter 8, how the king would take to give to his officers and to give to his servants. The ultimate goal of a godless government is not the well-being of its citizens. It's the promotion and protection of its own power. Really, I'm saying this wrong when I call it a godless government because it does have gods, little g gods. The gods of a godless government are the gods of power and authority. 
as opposed to the living God, the one true God who is the ultimate source of power and authority. In addition to establishing Samuel's credibility, what he's doing here is making one more point. He's making the bumper sticker point. You know what I mean? When, you're, when you drive close enough to a car, the back of a car, and you see the bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker says, don't blame me. I didn't vote for him. That's the point that Samuel is making here. He's saying when everything goes crummy with this new pattern of king that you're looking for, a king like all the nations, to use the phrase that the people used in chapter 8, when everything goes south, don't think that I brought this about. You have no cause to think that the reason why you asked for this king was because of me or my leadership or my the, the, the rule that I had for decades over the nation, I did nothing to justify you asking for a king like all the nations. This is an important point. Samuel is not, is not covering himself. He's not trying to engage in uh, um, self-protection. He's making the point that he obeyed God. First, he starts with his credibility in verses 1 through 5, and then in the as, as the chapter will unfold, he's communicating that when you understand what this king will bring about and you cry out to God because of what this godless government will bring, you need to know that it is, perfect, that it is entirely illegitimate for you to blame the prior rule of God's servant, me, because that's not how I rule. I didn't take, take, take like this new king will take. Samuel then shifts to a history lesson in order to remind Israel about God's faithfulness. Look at verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your... Excuse me, uh, verse 6 of chapter 12. Then Samuel said to the people, It is Yahweh who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before Yahweh concerning all the righteous acts of Yahweh which he did for you and your fathers. This is an accusation. This is an indictment from Samuel before the people. And you can tell that by verse 7, where he says that I may plead with you. This is not a, hey, I plead that you do this. Please do that. Please do this other thing. That's not the way the word plead is working here. This is the Hebrew word shafat, which we have seen before in the book of Judges. It means to rule, to judge to lead in the cow stem of the verb, which is the way it's primarily used in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is called the shafatim, the ones who judge, the ones who rule. That's based on the cow stem of the verb. In Hebrew, you can have different stems. This is not the cow stem of this verb. This is another stem called the nifal stem of the verb, and so it has a different meaning. It means to plead something in a court the way a prosecutor would plead something against the defendant before the court. So when the state of Texas, when a, when a prosecutor brings an indictment against someone in the state of Texas for this crime or that crime or the other crime, he pleads an indictment. He pleads to the court, this defendant committed ran larceny. It's a pleading before the court. That's the way plead is used here in verse 7. Samuel is indicting the nation for their unfaithfulness in response to God's faithfulness. So he says, stand up. 
That's what a defendant does when the charges are read against him. He says, stand up because I am making accusations against you. The indictment that Samuel has against Israel is based on the righteous acts of Yahweh. You see that phrase here in our text in verse 7. In other words, how God has honored the covenant that he made with Abraham, and then he repeated it to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then he repeated it to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. God has been faithful to the covenant, which is to say he has always acted righteously. We're going to study the Abrahamic covenant in detail in the not-too-distant future in the 930 when we wrap up Isaiah on Sundays. We'll do a study of the covenants. Tonight, I just want to briefly look at the Abrahamic covenant because it has a, a significance here in our passage in chapter 12. Please turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, chapter 12 is the first time that God issues the Abrahamic covenant. He'll repeat it. He'll repeat it in Genesis 17 to Abraham. He'll repeat it elsewhere in Genesis. But I want you to just look at the first time that God issues the Abrahamic covenant. It's in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. There we read this. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are three parts to the covenant. There are three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Part number one, land. Part number two, seed. Part number three, blessing. In our passage, Samuel is going to park on two of those parts. He's going to park on land and blessing. He's really not going to spend much time on seed. But there are those three parts of the Abrahamic covenant and I just wanted to spend a minute in Genesis 12 because this is where the covenant begins. And then when we get back to, to 1 Samuel 12, you'll see Samuel explaining how God has been faithful to the covenant. This is what the history lesson is that Samuel is going to give the nation. So please turn back to 1 Samuel 12. In verse 6, Samuel begins with the Exodus in the history lesson. In the Exodus where God blessed the Israelites by liberating them from Egypt. They didn't liberate themselves from Egypt. They're slaves under the most powerful man on the planet, at least in the known world, Pharaoh. You didn't challenge Pharaoh. You challenged Pharaoh, it's your head. They didn't free themselves. God blessed them by freeing them from the slavery of Egypt this is why Samuel refers to Egypt. And then Samuel refers to Moses and Aaron because it's, he says, God appointed them as your leaders. That's another blessing. The elders of Israel. Remember, God sends Moses to the elders of Israel to tell them, God has appointed me. In Exodus 3, Moses says, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't speak very well. I don't want to do that. And God says, go. God appointed these leaders as an act of blessing to Israel, the leaders of Moses and his brother Aaron. God liberated them from Pharaoh as a blessing to the people. These are part of God's righteous acts, to use the phrase from verse 7. 
his faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. Keep reading in 1 Samuel 12, 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to Yahweh, then Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron who, br- Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Here in one verse, Samuel summarizes 430 years of Israel's history, beginning with Jacob. When Jacob brought his family to Egypt, really, God brought Jacob's family to Egypt because there was the famine in the land of Canaan, and God sent Joseph first. Joseph's brothers thought it was for evil, where they sold him, where they threw him in the well and sold him as a slave. But God was moving Joseph to Egypt to make him the second in charge so that Joseph could save the family of Jacob because God was faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 7, the 430 years that Samuel summarizes begins with Jacob's family where God delivers them from the famine. Then it goes into the Egyptian bondage where God frees the Israelites from Pharaoh. Then it goes to the wandering in the wilderness where God preserved them in the wilderness. Then it goes through the conquest of the promised land. That's why it refers to this place at the end of verse 8. In the conquest, God gave them victory over the peoples of Canaan so that they would receive the land part of the covenant that God had made. Remember, the covenant is, is a contract. In the, in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, it's a unilateral contract. A one, only one party has to perform it. That's God. And so God promised the land. He promised blessing to Abraham. And Samuel here in one verse is unfolding 430 years of God's history in performing that promise, excuse me, 530 years of God's history in performing that promise to Abraham. That 530 years, if you want to break it down, it's 430 years in Egypt. They were there in Egypt for 430 years. It's 40 years in the wilderness. And then the conquest of the land is about 56 years beginning with Joshua's initial conquest. Samuel's point is this. In addition, in addition to you not having cause from me to prompt you to ask God for another kind of ruler, for for a king like all the nations, in addition for you not to have cause from me, you also don't have cause from God. God didn't do anything that would justify your request for a king that would be independent from you because God has been nothing but faithful to you and to your fathers. In fact, it's you, Israel, who is unfaithful, who has been unfaithful to to God, Samuel says. Look at verse 9. But they forgot Yahweh their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. In other words, there's this warfare between Israel and the enemies of Israel. This is what Samuel takes the reader back to. Samuel, who's the last of the judges here, recounts events that we studied in the book of Judges, where over and over Israel displayed her disloyalty, her unfaithfulness to a faithful God. And what she would do is she would worship idols. Now, the worship of idols is bad enough But worshiping idols always produces something. 
Worshiping idols produces wicked behavior. The reason why our culture is characterized by wickedness is because, by and large, we are an idolatrous culture. And so when you don't worship the living God, you worship a no-God, that produces something. It's not just some activity in the mind. The thought produces an action. And so the reason why God disciplined the Israelites over and over in the book of Judges is because of their idol worship which produced the action of wickedness. Really what Samuel's doing here is he's recounting the sin cycle that we saw so many times in the book of Judges. The people sinned. God punished them. It hurt, so they repented. God relented, which is to say he delivered them. And then there was peace. Notice this phrase in verse 9, they forgot God. He's talking about in the time of the Judges, they forgot God. That's always the first step into wickedness. Other things just become more important. You know, maybe at one time, God was top shelf. God was priority number one. And, you know, maybe you make him priority number three. And a little later, he's priority number five. And a little later, he's priority number, you know, I'll read my Bible a little later. I'll study the Word of God a little later. And priority 5, priority 10, priority 15, and sooner or later, you just forget him. That's what the people did. They forget God. They forgot God, and so God sold them, it says, right? Here in verse 9, it says, he sold them into the hands of their enemies. Selling them is the same figurative language that we saw in the book of Judges. It's this, it's this rich language that describes God as if he were a slave trader a merciless, ruthless slave trader, and as if he just sold the Israelites into the hands of these enemies. The reason it describes God this way is because there is a time where mercy is no more. There is a time where ultimately God turns the spigot of mercy off, where he says, no mas, and he turns on the spigot of judgment and wrath. And so in verse 9, Samuel gives us a sampling of some of the enemies of Israel that God sold them to, so to speak, that God used to discipline her. Sisera, for example, we studied him in Judges chapter 4. He was the general of the king of Canaan, and he oppressed Israel for 20 years. The Philistines, we saw them on many occasions in the book of Judges on 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 a number of occasions we saw them oppressing Israel, Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 10, Judges 13, where they oppressed oppressed Israel for 40 years. The king of Moab, Judges chapter 3, oppressed Israel for 18 years. Each of these time periods involved divine discipline in the book of Judges, and they were designed to bring the people to the next part of the sin cycle, to repentance. Sin Punishment, repentance. And by the way, that sin cycle is for Israel, but it's for you and me as well. That's how our sin cycle goes in our own individual lives when we gravitate back to sin. Look at verse 10. They cried out to Yahweh and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those are the the local idols. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Through Israel, we see a picture 
of the human heart, when we forsake God, or if you prefer, forget God, we worship another automatically, without exception. That's the default. If you're not worshiping God, you automatically worship an idol. There's no in-between. He's hardwired us to worship Him. And so our sinful heart, our sinful eyes, our sinful lust automatically gravitates to what we can see and touch and feel. So we make our job our idol. We make our money our idol. We make entertainment, sex, pleasure, whatever, leisure, technology. I mean, the list is long and undistinguished of all the idols that we manufacture when we don't worship God. When we don't worship God, we create this vacuum of unbelief, this vacuum in the soul, and the idols just rush in and we say, bring it. We love that stuff because we've created a void that must be filled by something and the ways of the world rush in. In verse 11, we then see the next step in the sin cycle, God's deliverance. Then Yahweh sent Jerubbaal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. Here Samuel again reminds the people of God's faithfulness. God did not abandon Israel, which would have been perfectly within his province. That would have been perfectly justified for him to abandon, abandon Israel when she got engaged in all of this other idolatry. But instead, in his faithfulness, in his righteous acts, to use the phrase that Samuel's already used, in his loyalty to his promise in the Abrahamic covenant, he raised up judges to deliver them over and over and over. When Israel would repent, God would relent and raise up a judge like Jerubbaal, which is another name for Gideon. He delivered Israel from the Midianites. We saw that in the book of Judges. Or Bedan. You remember Bedan in the book of Judges? Maybe. Anybody remember the judge Bedan? No. We didn't see the judge Bedan in the book of Judges. Which raises the question, who's Bedan? All right, we see Bedan here in this verse. We're not exactly sure who Bedan was. He's not mentioned in the book of Judges. Some believe that Bedan is really just another name for Barak in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It says Barak. Remember, Barak was the general under the judge Deborah in Judges chapter 4. It's possible that a scribe made an error in the, in the, in the copying of the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew letters for um, for our English K and, the Hebrew, and our English D are somewhat similar. So it's possible that a scribe mixed up the letters, but I lean more towards the idea that Bedan was a judge that simply wasn't mentioned in the book of Judges. And the reason I say that is because Samuel is listing judges here. He's listing Gideon, who is Jerubbaal or, or Jephthah or Samuel himself. He's listing judges. He's not listing generals of judges. And Barak was not a judge. Barak was a general under the judge Deborah in Judges chapter 4. 
But I'm not going to get all fired up about that and get dogmatic about it because I think it's not 100% clear other than to say Bedan was not listed in the book of Judges. So we see Jephthah who delivered, who was one of the judges listed in the book of Judges. He delivered Israel from the Ammonites. We see Samuel mentioning himself. He delivered Israel from various enemies. But in the end, none of these individuals actually delivered Israel. Who delivered Israel was God. You see that in verse 11. Then Yahweh sent these various judges and delivered you. It's Yahweh who's the actor of that verb. Yahweh delivered you from the hands of your enemies. It was always Yahweh who was faithful in the face of the people's faithlessness. Over the years, he raised up leaders when they were needed. But the people do not believe that Yahweh will do it again. He's raised up all these leaders, all these different judges, including the most recent of which is Samuel. But the people this time say, I don't really think you're going to do that again, God, because I don't believe you. You're not reliable to me, the people are saying. We don't trust you. Look at verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although Yahweh was... Yahweh, your God, was your king. So here we get a little more information. We get a little more information than from chapter 8. What prompted the people to ask Samuel for a king like all the nations was Nahash, the same Nahash we saw last time who invaded Jabesh Gilead in chapter 11. Apparently, he had been a threat in the past And so it scared the Israelites, and in their fear, in their distrust of the Lord, in their refusal to believe that the Lord would raise up another leader like he had done in the past, they asked for a king like all the nations. God had been their king for centuries, but this time they decided not to trust him, and they want a new king, so they rejected him. I mean, that's what God told Samuel. Remember in chapter 8, Samuel is... Ra'ah, towards the people's request. That's what the Hebrew is. His response was ra'ah, displeasing evil. And God says, you don't have to be upset with the people. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. Your leadership for decades, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. Remember in chapter 8, verse 7, God says to Samuel that Israel has not rejected him. They've rejected me from being king over them because God was their king, but they decided they didn't want that. Keep reading in verse 13. Now, therefore, he is the king whom you have chosen. Who's the he? It's lowercase. It's Saul. Now, therefore, here is the king, I should say, whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. The the person, the king that is the, the, the referent in verse 13 is Saul. He's the one who is being described in this verse, and it's all about the people's pick. That's why it says, whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. Those are the phrases that are used here. You say, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. I thought God ch- told Samuel to anoint Saul. So did God pick the king or did the people pick the king? The answer is both. 
The people picked the king in the sense that they wanted a king that would fit their design like all the nations. God picked the king in the sense that he selected a king who would fit the people's design. This is not God's design for a king. We'll see God's design for a king when this one kills himself. When Saul kills himself in a final battle and is disgraced, then the new king will take his office, and the new king being David, of course. What we're seeing in verse 13 is two things happening at the same time. The sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity both coexisting in verse 13. Keep reading. Verse 14, If you will fear Yahweh and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of Yahweh, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow Yahweh your God. Here's the key. Samuel gives them the key to blessing right here in this verse. It's to fear God, reverential awe. Remember Proverbs 9.10, that's the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God involves obeying God. That's why you see obedience described in different ways in this verse. Serving Him, you see that phrase there, that's obedience. Listening to His voice, that's obedience. Not rebelling against His command, that's obedience. Literally in the Hebrew, it's not rebelling against His mouth. Not rebelling against the mouth of God. Because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the word of God, which is a person. Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, he will have written on his thigh the word of God. That's his name. And Jesus, of course, is Yahweh in the flesh verse 14 is about reverential awe the fear of god which produces obedience and notice the promise at the end of the verse if they will fear god then both they and their king will follow god if the people fear god then they'll follow god and even their government will follow god what a blessing The reason why our government doesn't follow God is because we don't follow God. This is a simple equation. It's not complicated. When I say we, I mean we as a culture. A nation's leaders are a product of the people. They're a product of the people's obedience or a product of the people's disobedience towards God. And in the end, God appoints the leaders, whether that's a monarchy or whether that is the case in a nation where leaders are elected like ours. Although the electorate makes votes, it's ultimately God who moves events to put a particular person in office, whether that's in a monarchy or whether that's in a republic like ours. And God doesn't just move events to put the person in office. He moves events to move the person, to do His will through the person. Whether that is His will, not that God ever produces sin, But at the same time, God allows sin and God can put a leader in office who will engage in sin. He'll do it with Saul. I think he does it now in the year 2022. God moves the leader in one direction or the other. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. Is God responsible for sin? No way. 
Not now, not ever. But yet, God, in His sovereignty, can move events so that you have a wicked leader who matches the wickedness of a people, a rebellious, faithless leader who matches the faithlessness of a people, and God can do that without compromising His own holiness. This is a God that we should worship indeed. If the people would submit to God, He would give them a ruler who would also submit to Him. But rejection of God brought them divine discipline. It was that way in the book of Judges, and it's that way here in the time of Samuel. Keep reading in verse 15. If you will not listen to the voice of Yahweh, but rebel against the command of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Here Samuel is using history to call the people back to covenant, to call the people back to the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you, I will curse you. That is the sin cycle. The people disobeyed, God punished. The people then obeyed through repentance and submission to Him. Then He blessed. And then the people disobeyed and He punished. And then the people relented, or the people repented and God relented in His punishment. It's a cycle that is repeated over and over. And Israel today in the year 2022 is in the sin cycle. The same sin cycle as the book of Judges. They're in disobedience from God. They're in rebellion having rejected her Messiah. So they're being punished by God. A time will come when that punishment is over because she will submit to her Messiah, which will happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Period. Verse 16. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which Yahweh will do before your eyes. This combination of words here in verse 16, take your, take your stand and see in the Scripture, the first, well, the only, maybe the best way to say it is, the only time we've seen it so far in the Scripture, before 1 Samuel chapter 12, is when Moses stands on the western bank of the Red Sea and the people are terrified because Pharaoh's chariots are charging towards them. And he says, stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Watch this miracle as the Lord uses me to part the Red Sea. That's what Samuel is about to do. He's about to do a miracle. Samuel is going to perform a sign. Let's just, let's just read the sign in verse 17. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to Yahweh that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh by asking for yourselves a king. Here Samuel is going to perform a miracle, a sign to validate his indictment of the people for them having distrusted God, for them having thought God unreliable, unworthy of their faith for wanting a king like all the other nations. The miracle is rain. You say, I'm from Houston, rain's not that, that impressive to me. Rain's all the time in Houston. Well, this is an impressive miracle. You don't speak that way in the Texas Hill Country. I learned quickly when I moved to the Hill Country. When I said, hey, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's the wrong way to think there, Alex. 
this is a miracle because it's in the wheat harvest season, Samuel says. That's early summer in that part of the world. In early summer, there's no rain. It's not the rain season. The raining season is in the wintertime. And so the miracle is that Samuel will call down rain from the sky. By way of the miracle, Samuel wants it to be undeniable that their request for a king was wicked. Look at verse 18. So Samuel called to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh and Samuel. God's authority over nature evidences His sovereignty. Neither nature nor humanity is the product of random evolutionary chance. Both are the product of the sovereign creative acts of God. The people get it. The people understand the spectacular nature of this miracle. It says they feared the Lord because of it. This was Samuel's objective all along, to bring them to the fear of God because that is the place of humility and blessing for them and for you and me. Look at verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. They now understand the great insult that they have presented before God in not trusting Him to raise up another leader as He had done for generations upon generations upon generations. But they're a day late and a dollar short. He's already been put into office. God has already anointed Saul. He has been appointed king. Look at verse 20. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Yet Samuel's saying here, Don't worry, God's not going to kill you. God's not going to kill you for this great insolence that you have presented before God for not trusting Him. Your great sin for asking for a king like all the other nations. Verse 21, You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For, the Lord will, for Yahweh will not abandon His people on account of His great name because Yahweh has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. As we have seen over and over and over so far in chapter 12, God is faithfulness. God is faithful, and Samuel is showing God's faithfulness. Here's what God does here. He turns lemons into lemonade, right? The people have engaged in a great sin, and now they recognize it. Now they repent, but it's too late. This king who follows the pattern of all the nations is already in office because the people repented too late, He's in office. God has appointed him, anointed him. God has given the people what they wanted. Be careful what you ask for. God gave them what they wanted, and now they recognize that what they wanted was something that was sinful. But yet God, in his great mercy and his continued faithfulness to Israel because of his promise in the Abrahamic covenant, he says here, if you will submit to me, then I will provide for you, even though you've got this crummy king. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. I get it. 
But the message, the gist of this is despite your sinfulness and despite the fact that you now have this crummy king who fits your pattern, a king after all the the, the pattern of the nations, despite that, I will provide for you if you will now submit to me. The consequences of sin are unavoidable. Consequences of sin are real. You confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences for the sin that you committed. That means that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. Now, God may or may not take the belt out and whip you for every single sin. I don't think God does that for every sin. You never know when he's going and when he's not. The consequences of sin are what are real and what are unavoidable. The king is now in office, and God is not going to undo that. But if the people will submit to God, he will provide for them despite their sin, and he will cause all things to work together for good to those who love him. Romans 8. He can even cause our sin to work together for good. Does he condone sin? Of course not. Does he promote sin? Of course not. But even the wrath of man will praise him, the scripture says. As I say, this is a God indeed. All of his great faithfulness and mercy here in this passage is on account of Yahweh's great name. That's what Samuel says. In other words, his reputation. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to not perform his promise to Abraham. It is impossible for the Jewish nation to go extinct despite the anti-Semitism that is satanically energized throughout the ages, even today by the nation of Iran or by Hezbollah or by any of them. Yahweh has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, land, seed, and blessing. And he is not God, which is an impossibility if he fails to promise that. Obedience was the method by which Israel would enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. This is very important. Obedience. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. Meaning they don't have to do anything for God to deliver land, seed, and blessing. God's going to do it. He promised that he would do it. But for them to enjoy those blessings, they must obey the Mosaic Covenant. I'm just touching on these very lightly today because we're going to see it in more detail when we get to, the, to a study of the covenants in the 930. The Mosaic Covenant is, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll punish you. That's how they would enjoy the benefits of the Mosaic Covenant. One is Unconditional, excuse me, the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Mosaic covenant, conditional. You do something, I do something. I do something, you do something. Based on the condition. Both parties have a condition, bilateral, in the mosaic. You obey me, I will bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. Abrahamic covenant, unilateral. Unconditional. I'm going to do this. And nothing will stop me, not even you, land, seed, and blessing. We'll see this in more detail as we look at the covenants in the 930 in the not-too-distant future. Samuel says that blessing is found in serving Yahweh, not serving the futile things. What does he mean by futile things? Here in this passage, he means the idols, the, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Look at verse 23. 
Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Samuel says, regardless of what you do, regardless of whether you obey or you disobey, I'm going to teach the truth and I'm going to pray for you. Regardless of how you act or speak or think. In fact, Samuel says, it's a sin for me not to pray for you. That's interesting. It's a sin for me not to pray for you. He's not just talking about his role as priest and prophet. One of the responsibilities of the priest was to pray for the people or to use the language of the law to burn incense. That was one of their responsibilities was to pray for the people. Samuel is including that in his statement. It would be a sin for him not to pray because he's a priest. That's true, but there's more in Samuel's statement that it's sinful not to pray. He's applying it to every child of God. That's why Paul comes along with these commands in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. That's an imperative. That's an order, which is to say it's a sin not to do it. When the apostle, the messenger of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ says, do this, it's a sin if we fail to do it. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times. In Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. These are not suggestions. These are not recommendations. This is not a yield sign. I don't have to stop if there are no cars coming. No, this is a absolute command. Do this, Paul says. And centuries earlier, over a thousand years earlier, before Paul, Samuel says, it's a sin for the child of God not to pray. Not just Samuel as the priest not to pray, but for the child of God not to pray to the Lord himself. Look at verse 24. Only fear Yahweh and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Again, Samuel is calling the people back to covenant in the tradition of all the prophets. Remember, he's the first one to hold the office of prophet. There were others who functioned as a prophet before, like Moses functioned as a prophet Abraham functioned as a prophet, but Samuel is the first to hold the office of prophet, and so he's doing what the prophets after him will do, calling the people back to covenant, to the Mosaic covenant. Obedience brings blessing, and disobedience brings discipline. He tells the people to remember the great things that God has done in the past. Remembering God's faithfulness is critical. It was critical in the age of Israel, and it's critical to the believer in the church age today. Our world is full of uncertainties and unpredictabilities, and God alone is reliable and trustworthy 100% of the time. Totally unique in our fallen, broken world. No one, no thing, no matter how much insurance you have, is not 100% reliable and trustworthy all of the time. Remembering God's faithfulness is the motivator. That's why Samuel is calling the people to remember the history lesson. The history lesson does indict them, but it also 
refreshes their memory of God's faithfulness, remembering God's loyalty. God's been loyal to Israel because of the promises to the Abrahamic covenant. You say, well, hey, I'm not Jewish. Okay, well, neither am I. So why do we care about God's promises to Israel? Because God makes promises to us as well. Different promises, but promises to us. And if he reneges on the promise to Israel, then you should bank on him reneging on the promise to you. But if he is faithful to the promise to Israel, then you should bank on him being faithful to the promise to you. This is why it is so important to view the Scripture from a lens of God is still going to fulfill the promises to Israel that are not yet completed, like the promises with respect to the land, the promises with respect to the Messiah, the promises with respect to the kingdom. Because if he doesn't fulfill those promises in the future, then you shouldn't trust him for your salvation. If there's not a kingdom where he makes the lamb and the wolf hang out together and the wolf not eat the lamb, if there's not a kingdom when they beat their their swords into plows, into, into tools for farming, if there's not a kingdom coming when there is absolute peace, then don't trust God for your salvation because he's unable to perform. Either that or he's disinterested in performing. But the reason why you believe that you will be saved, plucked from the death train, and you will not spend eternity in the lake of fire is because God is faithful. We first see his faithfulness to Israel, and that gives us confidence that the promises that he has given us will be literally fulfilled as he has literally fulfilled them to Israel. This is a great motivator for the child of God, and it gives confidence that our faith will be rewarded. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, those who come to God, those who seek God, must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Right? We don't trust in Christ for our salvation without believing that He's going to give us our salvation. You say, well, duh. I mean, that's not faith otherwise. Right? We trust in Christ that He will save us, that He gives us His righteousness, and that that is salvation from eternal condemnation. But if instead someone says, you know, I trust in Christ, but He's not going to save me from eternal condemnation, that's not faith. That's not faith in what Christ does and who Christ is, which is to say, to use the language of the, book of he- of the, the writer of Hebrews, It's not believing that he will reward you. Because those who come to God must believe that he is, that Jesus is the one who is God in the flesh, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You must trust that he will save you from eternal damnation. And he will. This is the whole concept of reward. There is reward in salvation because we don't receive the lake of fire, which is what we justly deserve. That's a reward. And then when the believer obeys the Lord day in and day out, there's additional rewards. That's a different reward. That's reward for walking in the ways of of the Lord, which you would call sanctification. And that's rewards in the eternal kingdom. But the first reward is salvation. 
admittance into the kingdom, the passport to get into the kingdom. And so we have confidence, we have reliance, we trust in God's faithfulness. The faithfulness that He has exercised in the the past is a great motivator for us, and it gives us confidence that our faith will, in fact, be rewarded. But in order to know God's faithfulness, we must know His Word. And that's why the study of the Scripture is so important. All of the Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures, all of them. We'll close with that this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it, enlighten us by it. Give us eyes to see the importance of your ways and your truth. Break us of our rebellion. Challenge us to submit to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.